Well, as you know, we're, uh, we're in the study of Luke's gospel, and I thought I would take a little bit of time to break away from that in the same topic, but do some practical work in this area that Jesus has been teaching us about in the gospel of Luke. It's the area of the way that pride blinds us from the truth, blinds people from Christ so that they don't ever come to him, and it blinds Christians from effectiveness in their Christian life because we let those prideful patterns come in. That's what we've been looking at. But for a moment, just by way of introduction, look with me at James chapter 4, James chapter 4, where James tells us sort of the, the crux of the issue, the heart of both pride as well as how to solve the problem. We won't stay just in this passage, but it helps us understand what we're up against and why pride is so blinding. You notice in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says that the source of our angst, the source of our troubles, is the, the desires, the pleasures that are at war within us. They're at war with the Spirit of God if you're a Christian, and those desires rule you and hold you in bondage if you don't know Jesus Christ. He also then says that to be a friend of such things, to go down that road, to, to make that your lifestyle, to, to be full of pride, is to be at, at odds with God, he says in verse 4. You're at odds with God at that point. And it is the Spirit of God that desires to control God's people and, and control all of them, he says in verse 5. But here is the great grace of the gospel, that God himself draws near to the humble gives grace to the humble and is opposed to the proud. And so James then introduces what you're supposed to do about that, how you solve that problem. In general, this is the way he says it. Submit to God and resist Satan, who then has to flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Here's how you do it. You cleanse your hands. That is to say, you look at the filthiness of your life and you move toward God in the gospel for cleansing. You purify your heart because your hearts are all about you, whether you have religious pretense or not. You're to purify that, come before God and make it about Him. You're to repent, verse 9. You're to be miserable and mourn and weep over sin instead of treating it casually. And then verse 10, the apex of it, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. We have to learn the insidious nature of pride and how it blinds, and then we have to nurture in our lives the things that, that God gives grace to, that He pours grace upon. And so I want to do that this morning. I want to look at the, the way that we nurture humility because we have been so clearly taught by the Lord on the nature of pride. You remember in Luke 14, Jesus was at a he was at a gathering that he was invited to, and pride was coming out all over the place at that gathering. You remember that the Pharisees had planned to catch him in something. Why? Because pride always hates holiness. It always hates righteousness. Pride always hates the real deal. And so they tried to catch him in something. It wasn't a genuine invitation of friendship. They were looking to do him in. And then they, they kind of set their own trap. You remember they invited a diseased guy and they thought, well, it'll play on Jesus' sympathies. He'll heal him and we'll have him. We'll have him dead to rights because he'll violate the Sabbath and then we can prove to the public that he isn't who he claims to be. He's not the Messiah. But they were proud, you see, and in their blindness, the irony was that if he did heal that man, it would demonstrate a miraculous power that the prophets said only the Messiah would have. 
And so in their foolishness, trying to get him to violate the Sabbath, they were blind to the reality that he would indeed in that moment prove what they dreaded that he would prove, that he is Christ, he is the Messiah. Pride always does that. Pride blinds you to the trap you're setting for yourself, and in the end, it does you in. We saw also that pride is selective with the Scriptures. They tried to hold Jesus to a standard of the Sabbath that they themselves didn't even obey. It wasn't in the Old Testament, but they'd added to it, and on occasion used it as a manipulative tool against other people to look down on other people. Oh, you don't obey the Sabbath like we say the Old Testament says you must. And they hoped to catch Jesus in such things, but he, he exposes their hypocrisy by just simply saying, look, when your livelihood's at stake, you, you work, you, you go after it, you save a family member, you save an animal, you take care of business even on the Sabbath, and yet you're trying to hold that on me when I'm trying to heal someone. So he catches them in this insidious manifestation of pride, which is that it is selective with the Scriptures. We uphold one area of Scripture we think we're strong in. We use it to exalt ourselves, and, and then we ignore on the backside all kinds of other passages that God holds His people to. We also saw that pride seeks the praises of men. They took the honorable seats in the banquet, just assuming that it was for them. And then the host was confronted by Jesus, you remember? He confronted the host and said, look, when you invite people, don't invite these people who can pay you back. That's not real humble love. Humble love says you invite people who, who have nothing to give you back because now you're making a, a real sacrifice. Love costs you something. You invite all these distinguished guests, they're going to invite you to their banquet and do the same for you. This is just back scratching for the sake of self-exaltation. Pride does sometimes give, but it gives with ulterior motives regularly. And we saw that pride ignores the implications. Some guy piped up in that dinner party and said, well, I'm in, at least I'm in. How blessed it's going to be to eat, the Lord, eat with the Lord in the kingdom. <clears throat> and he said, no, you're missing the point. Pride has blinded you to who I am. You don't believe in me. You just think we're already in. If you assume you're already in, he tells the parable that indicates they're not. I've invited you. You didn't come. You made excuses. Now I'm inviting others and you're out. It was, of course, a torpedo to Israel to let them know that he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. They made all kinds of excuses. We saw that in Matthew 11 when Jesus said, I'll compare this generation to little kids, you know. We, we played a flute and you didn't dance for us. We played a sad song and you didn't weep with us. You, you, you're just not doing enough. You're just not teaching what we want to hear. It's just never enough. And of course, that's exactly what it was. Jesus has invited people to come to him, all who are weary, and he'll give you rest, and you make excuses. Oh, I got this to tend to. I got this earthly life, this bank account, this uh, hobby, this family relationship. You make excuses, and in pride, you miss the gospel. That is our problem. So we've got to nurture the opposite. If you've come today, and you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, then You've already had your heart broken over your sin. You've already reached out to the Savior and come to Him, and He's given you rest, ultimate rest. But the problem is that we don't always live in the humility that brought our conversion. We often then will attach to our lives all kinds of these same manifestations of pride, 
lifting ourselves up above people, believing we're better than other people, believing we're worthy of God's eye instead of living humbly in his presence, not thinking carefully about the grace that saves, having theology that we develop that sort of exonerates us as righteous on our own, believing that it can be faith and works. Sometimes true believers go back to the idea that they can perform for God and earn his love. It's a mistake. We have to nurture the kind of humility that keeps us from those expressions of pride, let alone anything else that manifests itself in our lives, like the love of praise and selectiveness with Scripture and giving with ulterior motives, some of those other expressions. We can do that as believers. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, then it is, as the Scriptures teach, it is pride on your part that has blinded you to Jesus. It is pride. You say, where does it come from? I'm going to show you that. Let's, let's begin to think about how we nurture humility, how you understand from the Scriptures why we must come to God as our only answer and our only refuge. So I'm going to give you two principles this morning, and, and there's a host of others I'll finish up uh, in the subsequent weeks, but two principles this morning that are pride crushers, really. These are pride crushers. Pride crusher number one is the lordship and sovereignty of God. The lordship and sovereignty of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. I'm going to take a little bit of a tour in the scriptures here and there. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 teaches us that as believers, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. Having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. One of the most humbling truths, in fact, we would say the baseline truth that humbles us as believers and should humble every creature of God is that He is absolutely sovereign in His purposes and His will. Nothing can thwart our God. He's in the heavens. He does what He pleases, Psalm 115.3. Romans 11.36, Paul broke out into praise and said this, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. All things come from Him, ordained by Him. All things come through Him, sustained and upheld by Him, and all things are to Him. That is to say, everything swings back and brings Him ultimate glory in His purposes. All of it. You say, is that true even in my salvation? Well, that is the material point. If you are indeed a believer, it is because, as this text indicates, God, in eternity past, fixed His heart upon a sinner. You. He fixed His heart upon you. And even though you are born corrupt and full of pride, God one day broke that pride and shattered it in His grace. Look at chapter 2 of Ephesians for a moment. Here is Paul's description of what happened. First of all, the description of us. Verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's true. If you are a human being, that is to say you have a human nature. You are from the loins of the very first couple. They rebelled. 
they plunged humanity into corruption. Why? Because you're from their loins. You're a human. You have an immaterial part, the soul, the inner life, and you have a body, and together we are made in the image of God as his creatures. But we descend from the loins of Adam and Eve who corrupted it all. It would be like this. It would be like if you were born in your physical life into a family that was already incarcerated in prison. You're born into the cell and you don't know anything else but the cell. You're not born in a neutral place and then you choose bad things and go to prison. Spiritually speaking, you're born in the prison. That's how we're born. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Notice verse 3, we are by nature then children who will experience wrath. We're under the, the holy wrath of God because he must. God is holy, he's righteous, you cannot exist in his presence without perfection uh, for all eternity, and so we are born corrupt. In fact, Isaiah says it, that any righteous deed we do from the best of them, it's a garment that's tossed aside by God. It doesn't measure up. It won't measure up to his holiness. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We miss the righteous mark. This is the description of who we are at birth, at conception, really. This is who we are the moment we're created. This is who we are by nature. You're from Adam and Eve's loins. You're born in the spiritual prison. Sometimes people think that you're, you're born neutral, and, and Pelagius taught that centuries ago. He taught that you're born neutral, and the first bad choice you make, that's what corrupts you. No, original sin is taught in Scripture. You are born in sin. David said that in Psalm 51. In sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't talking about an illicit relationship. He was talking about the corruption that is there upon conception. It's passed from one generation to the next because death spreads in its curse. Its curse comes from sin, from rebellion, and all of us who are human beings descend from that first couple. We are born into that prison. But notice verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. There it is. Here I am dead, and he's got this great love with which he loved me. And so being rich in mercy, he made us alive, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. It is humbling to think about the lordship and the sovereignty of Almighty God, if that's my condition, born in the prison, that is all I know. It is also humbling to realize, as Romans 3 says, that we don't even seek after God. You say, well, wait a minute, I went to church, I sought the gospel. Yeah, from the human perspective, you did seek those things, but in your nature, you weren't seeking them you weren't seeking them in faith. God himself is the one, as I'll show you in a moment, who must draw you. It is absolutely humbling to realize that dead means dead. You're completely lost. You're born in the prison. And you will not choose in and of yourself on your own in your own power. You will not. You cannot. The natural man, 1 Corinthians 2, doesn't want to nor is able to. It's very, very clear in Scripture. You don't want it. You're not able to do it in and of yourself on your own. We are that bent against God. In fact, Romans 1 teaches that we suppress all that. 
We hear about God, we suppress it. We hear about His righteousness and its judgment on sinners, and we suppress it. What do we suppress it in? More pride? In more unrighteousness. We suppress it in, hey, I'm good enough. Wait a minute, what do you mean I'm not good enough? What do you mean I I can't get there on my own? What do you mean my good isn't going to outweigh my bad? What do you mean I'm a bad person? What do you mean I'm worthy of judgment? Are you kidding? I'm good. Basically, by nature, apart from a few bad things, man, you leave me to myself, I, I will rise to my own betterment. This is what we do by nature. But God, being rich in mercy, according to his great love with which he loved us, when we were dead, made us alive. That's a term for regeneration. He is the one who changed your nature. He's the one that brought you to life. He's the one. You say, well, pastor, that creates a tension in my mind with regard to human responsibility. Oh, really? Does it? Yes. Of course it brings tension to our minds in terms of human responsibility because from a human perspective, I I know what happened in my conversion. Somehow in the circumstances of life, the guilt of my heart, the the destruction of my choices, the bad relationships, the the poor uh, things on earth that I experienced, all of the scars of my sin, and someone loving me enough to pray for me and bring the gospel to me, all of that culminated in a moment where I moved toward God and I saw Christ as my only hope and I repented and believed. This is conversion from the earthly or, or horizontal perspective. And yet, in all of that, the Scriptures teach, and this will be a tension for you, the Scriptures teach that behind all of that was a sovereign God pulling you, drawing you, convicting you, and granting it to you. This is one of the most humbling truths in all of Scripture, the sovereign lordship of God. You want to nurture humility? Study it. Look at it. In our church, we don't deny the tensions. We just come right up to where the Scripture builds the wall. If you, you can't climb over the wall and see things God hasn't, hasn't explained because then you're going to lose your understanding of moral responsibility. But you can't be afraid to come all the way to where Scripture goes or you're going to move away from God's sovereign work in salvation. Both are true in Scripture, and yet they're paradoxical, are they not? Sometimes even the Lord himself says them side by side. Look back at Matthew 11. I'll show it to you. That text we read. Look at Matthew 11. Verse 27. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Wow, all things. Everything in the universe, including every soul, handed to God by his Father, handed to Jesus Christ by his Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Wow. And nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. They are in lockstep. They are absolutely connected. Whatever the Father does and knows, the Son does and knows, and vice versa. And notice this. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal Him. By the word know, by the way, the word know there means to intimately know, to really know, to experientially know, to know salvifically. And it's the Son who must will to reveal it. You say, well, that's the sovereignty of God. Yes, but then look at verse 28. Come to me. <laughs> All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. 
Look at John chapter 6. Jesus will say this again in a very unique way. John chapter 6. They got all offended because he said, I'm the bread that comes down out of heaven. You remember what happened. He, he, uh, he was telling them that he's the bread out of heaven, and that was offensive to them because they're saying, oh, you're the, you're the manna, you're the ultimate manna. Israel always knew there would be a supply that would be eternal, and their hunger would be, would be satisfied and their thirst quenched by the Messiah, and that's what he was claiming to be. And notice what he says in verse 35, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So on the human responsibility side, you come to Christ and you believe in Christ. But I said to you that you've seen me and you don't believe. He puts the responsibility for faith squarely on them. By the way, even though you're unable to come on your own without God's grace, and even though you, you won't come without God's sovereign grace moving you. It is still true. He requires it of you. It is required of every one of his creatures. He can require what you're unable to do. It is not, it is not unjust because you are born in prison. You're already born a rebel. You're not born neutral. It's like the woman who said to Spurgeon after he preached, and I paraphrase, hey, I, I really don't like the idea that God is sovereign over that and doesn't save everyone. Spurgeon said, you're missing the whole point. Everyone is against God. Everyone hates God. And he reaches into the middle of that and rescues out of his mercy. If he rescues none, he's not unjust. If he doesn't rescue one sinner, he's perfectly just. If every sinner goes to punishment forever, God is righteous and not worthy of an accusation. You understand that? You understand that? He doesn't save you because you're worthy to be saved. He doesn't save me because he sees something in me worth saving. He saves because he's a saving God, a loving God, a merciful God. That's the God we know. That's who he is by nature. And he wanted to manifest that and explain that and expose that. So he can say, I came to you, you see me, and you don't believe. It's your problem. It's out of your nature, your unbelief, your corruption. That's why you don't believe me. Now, they use that as an excuse to say you're not the Messiah. You know why we know you're not the Messiah, Jesus? Because Israel, God's people, doesn't believe you. That's how we know. You're rejected by your own people. That's how we know you're not the Messiah. And he says, oh, but, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me? That's right. You can read it in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 2 and 3. He said the Father gave him a people as a love gift in eternity past, gave it to the Son already past tense, and he is going to bring them, all of them. He'll lose none of them. And he has authority over every soul, and the Father gave him uh, a redeemed humanity as a gift. That's what he's referring to here. And every one that the Father gives me will come. And the one who comes to me, I'll certainly not cast out. Notice what he says, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. You know, they were grumbling at this, verse 41. They grumbled about it when he said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, this is Joseph's son. He has a father and a mother that we know. How does he say, I've come down out of heaven? You, you, you say your origin is divine, and yet we know your earthly mother and father? 
Jesus answered and said, don't grumble among yourselves about the gospel. Your pride is blinding you to it. You say I'm not the Messiah because you reject me? Oh, no. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There it is. So side by side, he puts the onus of human responsibility on them to believe, telling them you're, you're essentially in unbelief because you're imprisoned in it. And he says, but God is drawing, God is bringing, and all who come to me, they are drawn by the Father. He is sovereign, absolutely sovereign. You say, Pastor, from the human perspective, I came to Christ. I reached for him. My whole inner life reached out for Christ. Yes, but it is true in Scripture that God was behind all of that, moving and convicting and quickening and raising your nature to life. It's humbling. It's absolutely humbling. You say, It seems mysterious. It is mysterious but no different really than the paradox of a whole lot of doctrines in Scripture. You ask me, Pastor, how do you, how do you conquer sin in your life? Well, I do what the Bible tells me to do. I strive to cleanse myself of all defilement, 2 Corinthians 7.1. To cleanse myself of all defilement. I, I strive to run from sin, to flee carnal things. And yet, I don't have any power in myself to do so. So how do I actually effectually leave sin behind? The Spirit must do it. So Paul can say to the Ephesian believers, you be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You do it, but it's the grace that's in Christ Jesus that actually empowers you to do it. How is that not paradoxical? I could ask you, who lives your Christian life? Well, I do. I strive in the Christian life. Yeah, but who empowers you to do it? The Spirit of God. Well, which is it? Yes, it's both. It's paradoxical. God doesn't solve that tension. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. As I believe God and strive, the, the Spirit empowers me to success in His grace. That's not any less paradoxical than the sovereignty of God in salvation in quickening my dead heart. Yet from a human perspective, I see Christ, I I see my sin, I see my need, I seek forgiveness, I repent, and I come to Christ in faith. It's humbling. The place you begin to nurture humility is to realize that God is absolutely sovereign, did not have to save us. He's totally just to save none, and yet He is a merciful God, and this great love with which He loved us, He fixed it on you before time began, and that's why you sit here today if you're in Christ. That's why you are in Him. That is humbling. Because you, you're left with why? Every sin I ever commit is an offense to you. My very conception in sin is an offense to you. You're just, if you save no one, especially me, why? Because it's a great love with which he loved us in eternity past, and he gave you as a love gift to his son. You know what's even more remarkable? At time in history, you were born, and he wasn't going to save you till the moment you were converted. He was drawing you in that moment and saved you and called you effectually to himself. So there was a time between your conception and your growing up 
until you were saved, where you were still a child of wrath by nature, yet elect before the foundation of the world. And he knew he'd save you, and yet he was patient that whole time. Just waiting for his plan to unfold. That's just humbling. Humbling. You say, Pastor, then why do we give the gospel to anyone if God's plan is already unfolding? Because he also sovereignly chose the means by which people would get saved. Preaching the gospel to them. You don't know what God has done in fixing his heart on whomever. You don't know that. He doesn't have to save anyone. The fact that he reaches into the mire of humanity that hates him and saves is, is a marvelous truth. You know how he saves? You give him the truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You feel tension in that? Yeah. So we come up to the wall of Scripture and we just bow down. Lord, you're sovereign. This is humbling for us. Pride crusher number two. Pride crusher number two. The cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. It is absolutely mind-boggling what it took to save me. Whenever an unbeliever and I have a chance to talk about the gospel or truth or what I believe, I always, you know, I try to open up with the same thing. Well, in order to live in God's presence, you must be perfect. You got to be perfect. If you're going to go to heaven, you got to be perfect. Sorry, that's just the standard. And it's offensive to an unbeliever. What do you mean I have to be perfect? You're not perfect. That's exactly what they say every time. Well, you're not perfect. That's true. Well, so how are you going to get to heaven? Ah, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> so glad you asked. If it had to be me, if it had to be something I offer, it's hopeless before it begins. I could live my whole life serving humanity and give my body up in martyrdom Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, and it would be a zero on God's scorecard without divine love, without conversion, without grace. Human beings offering human works that are supposed to be righteous enough for God are done before they're offered because our greatest work is a garment to be tossed aside by God. Look at Romans 3 for a moment. I want to talk for just a moment about this second principle as to how it humbles us. Romans chapter 3 tells us, first of all, of the necessity of the cross. Listen, you are humbled as a Christian when you begin to learn and come to grips with the necessity of the cross, that it was your and my sin that held Jesus there. It was our sin that held him there. Colossians says there were decrees in divine eternity that, that spoke against us. Those decrees were held against us and they were nailed to the cross on behalf of a Christian. We are guilty in the divine court. And so the cross becomes necessary because God does not overlook sin and notice the rap sheet of every person who has ever been born. Notice this. With the exception of Jesus Christ, this is, this is what we're like. Verse 10 of Romans 3, none righteous, not even one, none who understands, none who seeks for God. You know, this is an amazing thing. People are seekers. We, we want seeker-sensitive ministries. Look, 
if you're talking about what's inside the human heart, no one seeks unless God is drawing. We don't seek God. By nature, we seek ourselves and a God who will acknowledge that. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. We don't do good. There's not even one. And it gets worse. Look at what's inside. Our throat is an open grave. In other words, death is inside of us and comes out of our mouth. With our tongues, we, we keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's what makes the cross of Christ necessary. My guilt. If God isn't going to save, he's just. But if he is going to save, there has to be something other than me offered. There has to be. I bring nothing. That is my description right there. That's the epitaph of my unbelieving life and yours as well. And so verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So that is to say the cross is necessary because nothing I bring will ever make me acceptable. That's why when I tell unbelievers, God requires absolute perfection to live in his presence or you won't be acceptable. I'm I'm speaking of Romans 3.20. No flesh will ever be acceptable by God. The works of the flesh, none. You can't obey some standard of moral rightness and make it good enough for God because we violate the law in thought, word, and deed no matter how hard we try some standard. This was Paul and every Jew's frustration. They have a zeal for God's word, his law. They wanted to obey it because they knew it was the best way to live. But every time they tried, their heart just railed against it. That's what he says in Romans 7. He says, my heart railed against it. And I love the law of God, he said. I knew it was the standard of righteousness. But every time I read, you shall not covet, my heart wanted to covet. And it wasn't, it wasn't as though I had to conjure it up. It's just there. It's in me. Every righteous rule I hated by nature. Every law that said I should live this way and not this way, I hated by nature. Every command that I should worship God and God alone with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I hated because within me I want to worship me and I want people to worship me. This is what I want. And I demand it of my world around me. I can offer nothing. That's the necessity of the cross. That should humble us. But then notice the humility of the cross. The humility of it. Look, if God's going to display his righteousness against unbelief, it will result in wrath. But there is a righteousness of God, verse 21, that is being shown or manifested through faith, verse 22 says, in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. If we've all fallen short of the glory of God, verse 23, then then acceptance to God has to be a gift. It has to be a gift by His grace, and God can't wink at sin. So there has to be someone 
who's righteous enough for me and will come and on my behalf offer himself under the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the just payment of God. He must. And so notice verse 24. We're justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The redemption that's in Christ Jesus. There's the humility of the cross which should humble us. Philippians 2 says it this way. He deserves heaven. He's worthy of heaven because he's God. He is the essence of God himself, the second member of the Trinity. He deserves it. He belongs there. That's his glory. That's his place. But instead of clutching it and holding on to it, there is a greater need, a greater purpose to manifest his glory as a merciful God who saves sinners. And so on our behalf, he left all of that glory and humiliated himself by becoming one of us. What is humbling about the cross is not just its necessity that my sin held him there, but its humility. It was God himself who would come to solve my problem. Not some animal. The blood of bulls and goats don't actually save. They just secure the patience of God for another 12 months till the next day of atonement. And God was patient in the sacrificial system because notice what it says here, verse 25, middle of the verse, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Doesn't mean he winked at them or wouldn't punish them. He passed over them temporarily, patiently waiting because there were people in the Old Testament who said, okay, God, you're promising a sacrifice that will come and he'll be the permanent sacrifice for my sin, my Messiah, then I want him. I want him. And Isaiah 53 spoke of the one who would come and Israel would consider him stricken by God because of his own wickedness. And they were wrong. He was stricken by God because of their wickedness and their iniquity was laid on him. The humility of the cross humbles us. This is Jesus Christ meeting our need and yet he is God. He came from heaven to solve our problem. And God was patient in waiting for that sacrifice to happen. And notice the divine severity of it, verse 25. Not just the necessity of the cross and the humility of it, but the divine severity of it. God displayed him openly. That's publicly in some translations. But for the world, displayed him to the world as a sacrifice of propitiation. Or in other words, God had wrath. He's going to pour it out on sinners but instead he pours it out on his son to satisfy his wrath, to assuage it so that he doesn't pour it out on you. That's a propitiatory sacrifice. In Jesus' blood, the severity of it, so severe was it that Jesus in his humanity, knowing he was innocent, knowing he'd never committed a single sin, knowing that he was on the cross innocently and unjustly at the hands of ungodly men, he said to his father, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did he not know as God what he was coming here to do? Oh, he knew. But as Jesus in his humanity dying as a substitute for us, he was proclaiming what we should have known, that this separation between him and God is absolutely incongruous with who he was. He's righteous. He's acceptable. He's perfect. 
He doesn't deserve a moment of that wrath. And yet he was receiving it, drinking it all the way down in order that that wrath would never touch you and me who believe in him. Look, that is humbling. Pride misses that. Pride sees Jesus' death as humanitarianism or, or like false religions treat it like, oh, a human suffering. What an example of a willingness to sacrifice for others. Yeah, but they never talk about what the sacrifice really meant. It wasn't human suffering that was the issue. It was the suffering in front of God that was the issue. He was rejected by his own father, ultimately and totally forsaken. His father turned his back on him, though they'd never had a a separated moment. Their intimacy was based on innocence and purity and love and righteousness. And the father turned his back on his own son. It is the necessity of the cross and the humility of it and the severity of it that humbles the believer. When you meet God, you will suddenly know the profound depth of that sacrifice. When you stand in the presence of Almighty God with a clean and pure conscience, you will know His holiness like you've never known it. You will be perfected in your conscience and in your mind. Everything will fire off exactly as it was created to fire off in Christ Jesus. And in that moment, you will know what Jesus endured at a level you never knew it. Just so in that moment, you could stand before the throne of God and not be judged at all, but be fully embraced and accepted. You're humbled by that. We're supposed to be humbled by that. You want to nurture humility? Know that it was your sin that held Christ there. And know that it was His willingness to humble Himself. I'm humble and gentle in heart, He said. That's what He meant. I'm willing to come from the glories of heaven and lay my innocent life down, be separated from my Father for you so that you never will be. And it will be severe. I'll drink it all the way down. And it'll be total. I'm not just going to hand you a payment for sin. I'm actually going to raise from the dead to give you that same eternal resurrection life. So you, you don't, you're not just acceptable in one moment. You're acceptable for all eternity. And I will be the exalted Lord and master and friend giving you the inheritance I earned. So in its totality, we're humbled. And then we're humbled by the irrevocability of it. It it never will end. It's permanent. Can't be lost. It cannot be lost. Pride blinds us from these things. Why in the world would any believer stand above some other believer and condescend? I'll tell you why. Because we're fleshly and we forget the cross. We forget the sin that was ours that held Jesus there. We forget the severity of the penalty. We forget the humility that was expressed by God in coming to be a part of us, one of us to die on our behalf and be our substitute. When you believe in him by faith alone, just turn from your self-worship and your sin and believe in him, and it's yours. It's yours. You can't be by anything that you believe you are or anything you believe you're worthy to be. It's just faith in him, 
and righteousness covers you, and you are seen by the Father through the life and sacrifice of Christ. When Jesus looks at me, he sees perfection, even though he knows I have yet to be fully redeemed with a new body fashioned for glory. That ought to crush pride. And yet, what do we do? We, we look down on others. We condescend. We puff ourselves up. We glory in our human achievements. We bait people for compliments. We're selective with Scripture because we just don't want to honor the Lord in the ways He's called us to. Saddest reality is we're going to get to heaven and see how much we could have done for the Lord and didn't. That's going to be tough. Say, is that going to happen? Yeah. Read it, 1 Corinthians 3. You'll be humbled by how much you could have done for the Lord and didn't. There are 10 more. Man, bow with me.